You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. That the standards passed in Texas will be the standards used in all 50 states because textbook is the largest, the textbook market for Texas is the largest. Publishers make their money back by selling their textbooks in Texas. Then after they make their money, they take that textbook to all the other 49 states. Mm. So what we do with standards in Texas will be the textbooks that are used here in Rhode Island as well. Yeah. And, and why that's significant is these are the best standards I've seen in a public school textbook since World War II. I mean, it's a really good throwback. It's a love of country. It's, it's a knowledge of our documents. It's a knowledge of American exceptionalism, what makes us operate. But the deal is, we finished these standards about three weeks ago. Well, it's going to take them three years to write the textbook. Then the textbook will get in the classroom in about four years. Then you're going to have to go through 12 years of, of school. So we're talking 16 to 18 years before all the stuff in those textbooks get into the, the culture. And then 10 years after that, before those kids get elected to office and start doing things. So we're talking 30 years from now, but it's in the pipe coming down. I got nothing going on. You got nothing going on. I need something to do. We need something to do. You should know by now that men in the Bugatti, he's a member of the Club Illuminati. They do lots of weird shit. Thanks for downloading another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. We talk about art, politics, culture, and religion. We're also a proud member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Go ahead and like our Facebook page and give us a nice review on iTunes. Now enjoy the show. Okay, I don't miss everything about teaching in an evangelical college, like weekly chapel service, say, but there are some things. For example, I miss being able to point to objects and idols of Christian culture and reliably assume that most students will resonate with them one way or the other. My selections, of course, were often meant to incite debate, not necessarily orthodoxy. My favorite of these objects is a short video of the serpentine televangelist Kenneth Copeland and evangelicism's go-to historian David Barton. The topic at hand was PTSD in U.S. soldiers, and the objective of the presentation is to shame the disorder out of returning servicemen and women. If they were suffering from this, they were simply refusing God's victory over it. There were Bible verses and all to back it up, and here's a bit of that. Now, any of you suffering That's from right. PTSD right now, you That's listen right. to me. That's right. You get rid of that right now. You, it, you don't take drugs to get rid of it. It doesn't take psychology. Right. That promise right, right there, there will get rid of it. While we're talking about that, getting rid of that PTSD, guys who have been through battle, they need to understand that soldier's promise. You come back guiltless before God and the nation. Yes, you come back guiltless. You're also, even though you've been through battle, look how many people in Hebrews 11, our faith hall of fame, were warriors who took so many people out in battle. Almost that whole The whole thing. They're, they are warriors. They are battle guys. And God says, these are the guys. This is the faith hall of fame. right? I mean, not only are you guiltless, you're esteemed and venerated. And you need to get that vision of yourself. Okay, my students, of course, were correctly outraged by such nonsense. But somehow large swaths of Christian culture still turn to experts like Barton. So David Barton is the topic of our uh, latest episode of Sectarian Review. I believe we're at episode nine, and I have a new guest today. His name is Jay Eldred. Jay, how you doing? I am Jay Eldred. I have a degree in history, and I've spent the last seven years teaching high school social studies, so I've covered everything from geography to government and economics. I live in North Carolina with my wife, Crystal, who is an historic interpreter at one of our local historic sites, which makes life interesting having a history teacher and a history, shall we say, actor in the same house. And we live on the coast. Um, best place I can describe it is whenever they predict a hurricane, it's going to hit us. 
All right. And I have to like tell you, this was sort of Jay's idea. He reached out to the show um, to, with this idea, and it was so exciting to me. That's exactly how I kind of fantasize about this show working. So if you have any ideas that you'd like a, us to cover at some point, feel free to, to, to chime in. Jay is uh, probably familiar to many of the network listeners. He did sit in on a Christian feminist podcast once, I believe, right back in Thanksgiving. Yes. Yes. Okay. And that, again, he volunteered his services here. We have very kind listeners, and that's what's great here. Um, I am Danny Anderson. I am assistant professor of English at Mount Aloysius College in Crescent, Pennsylvania. And I've been doing this show here for six or eight months now, and it's been a lot of fun. Uh, and I'm encouraging more people to take part in the conversation. Um, I do want to thank, if you noticed today, we had a, uh, a new opening. Um, this band from New York that I, when I used to live in New York years ago, I used to, I saw this band a couple of times and kind of remembered them all these years. And I sort of reached out to them and asked them if I could use this song, and they were kind enough to let me do it, and I want to give them a plug. They're called Crazy in the Brains, and uh, you can buy their stuff on iTunes and Amazon and and all sorts of things. They have an awesome Facebook page, so uh, if you uh, like what you heard there, uh, look them up. They're a lot of fun, and and they're very kind to let me use their song for our new opening. and before we get to David Barton, then I have a few announcements I just want to kind of make. Uh, we have a dedicated web page now for the show. It's uh, sectarianreview.weebly.com. Um, you can find that pretty easily through our Facebook page. I'd encourage you to check that out. Everything is sort of collate or gathered right there now, and it's easier to find, I think, a lot of our stuff. There's a little blog where you can comment on things, and, uh, and I'm hoping to make that a, a convenience for the listeners. So check that out. Um, don't forget the Facebook page. That's how Jay initially reached out to me about this show, and, and it remains probably the easiest way to get in touch with us. Check that out and like it, and then you'll see what we're up to. There's a Twitter account, our email, of course sectarianreview at gmail.com and I suppose if you wanted to send me a letter you could probably send it to the college I work for um, and they would get to me uh, if you are into snail mail that would be kind of fun actually if I went downstairs and, and picked up a uh, uh, an old fashioned envelope at some point but um, and I want to, before we move on, thank Jordan Poss. He is another uh, new contributor he, of, of course you remember from the Trumpism episode Truly heroic effort that I need to sort of tell everybody about. He had a bad connection on his end of that episode, and he had to go back afterwards and essentially re-record all of his answers, uh, uh, like on his own, and he recorded little conversational things for me, and I was able to cut them back in, and uh, it was a, a truly... Uh, I was very honored that he was willing to put in all that effort for us. Uh, and so I want to thank Jordan and, and hope he comes back. Hopefully we didn't scare him off there. Um, and remind you to check out the other shows in the network. Uh, we have, of course, the, the flagship Christian Humanist podcast, the Book of Nature, uh, the Christian Feminist podcast, the Pietist Schoolman, and the newest one. Have you listened to the new one, Jay? The uh, City uh- of Man Yes, I have. Yes, I've been enjoying that. Uh, Coyle Neal and uh, do you remember his partner's name? That's a little embarrassing. I know Coyle a little bit. I don't know the other guy. Uh, uh, no, I don't. So, yeah, but it's uh, it's worth looking into. It's a, a poli-sci and history um, uh, podcast, and, and they're doing a great job so far. So I encourage you to check all of those things out. And, uh, and please spread the word about this one. Uh, we are um, always looking for uh, new contributors and new listeners, and any help you can give us in doing that would be awesome. So um, enough of that, Jay. <laughs> let's uh, kind of jump into the actual subject. Of, and what do, you, what do you say there? Um, let's get to it. Can you give us a little bit of background on the subject for our show today? Who is David Barton, and why is he both trusted by some people and controversial uh, in other realms? Well, I guess we should start with who Barton is. Um, if you don't know or if you haven't heard of David Barton, he is a self-styled historian and religious political activist. Um, if you try to find out his biography on his own website, it doesn't say anything about education. I had to go digging to find out where he actually got a degree from, and apparently he has a bachelor's degree of some kind in religious education from Oral Roberts. Um, his state admission, what he's out there, what his um, goal is, I guess, is to present America's forgotten history and heroes with an emphasis on our moral, religious, and constitutional heritage. Um, to this end, he has become, 
I guess, somewhat of an expert, or at least he's being considered as an expert by conservative groups around the country. His main focus in, the, in recent years has been in revising state history standards in Texas and California. Um, for those that don't know, those are two of the largest states in the United States, and the way that their curriculum goes, so goes the rest of the nation. Um, he also founded Wall Builders. It's an organization existing mainly to house his personal library of founding documents, promote his materials. Um, Barton, in recent years, has also become involved in far-right Republican politics. Um, he rode the coattails of the Tea Party to prominence several years ago and is currently heading Keep the Promise Pack supporting presidential candidate Ted Cruz. I know we discussed Trumpism a few uh, a few segments ago, so you know we're equal opportunity here. <laughs> yes, yes. So, uh, didn't the Tea Party actually try to get him to run for some office, and he he declined? He did. Yeah. Uh, that was probably a good thing. Yeah, <laughs> um, for everybody, right? So, in addition to this profitable lecture circuit, he's also released a video series called "America's Godly Heritage," and several years ago made national news with. Um, a so-called history book called The Jefferson Lies. So-called, okay. So, and I'm, yeah, that's not just me. <laughs> no, that's a pretty famous uh, um, stain. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about that history book? I know the, the, the publisher even sort of backed away from it, right? Oh, yeah. Um, so Jefferson, not Jefferson, Barton has, as, oh, I want to say this. Barton's whole idea is that America's religious heritage has been papered over, it's been whitewashed, it's been washed out, whatever you want to say. It's been removed from our history books, and it's his goal to put it back in. And his most recent attempt on that was to make Jefferson a 21st century evangelical fundamentalist Christian. Um, he called it the Jefferson Lies. I know that for Many years in schools, Jefferson was taught at best a deist, I guess, yeah. you would say. Um, you know, there's the famous book-cutting incident and what he actually – or Bible-cutting incident and what he actually meant by that. Right. Um, his, his – Barton saw Jefferson as a man whose, quote, pioneering stand for liberty and God-given inalienable rights – fostered a better world for this nation and its posterity. Um, I will admit I have not read the book, so I'm not certain how he addressed you know, issues like slavery, given the God-given inalienable rights. Mm. But um, he came under controversy because, well, first of all, he couldn't find any professional historian to endorse his work, not even from any evangelical college, none of his normal cohorts would back him. I think he got one psychology professor from Liberty University to give a blurb for it, and that was about it. Um, so when actual historians began detailing his inaccuracies, his selective sampling, the misquotes, the mis, the mis, uh, the mis attribute. I can't even say the word. <laughs> Attrib uh, attributions. Attributions. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. I almost messed it up too. The book ended up being labeled the least credible history book in print, <laughs> and the publisher, Thomas Nelson, was forced to pull the book. Um, I found out later on that Glenn Beck decided he would help Barton get rid of his remaining copies after his original publisher pulled out. I think it was something like 17,000 that still needed to be distributed. And there was actually a reprint in January of this year, so there are even more of these things floating out there right now. Under Glenn, does Glenn Beck have something to do with the publishing? Not any now? longer. Okay. He got he, from what I understand, Beck got helped him distribute the original public the original publishing run, and then some other company decided to reprint it in January. 
Okay. I think it was like World Net Daily or World News Daily, something like that. Oh, right. That WND yeah. um, website that I've, I think blocked from all my Facebook feeds at this point. So uh, Probably mine as well. Yeah. Well, I, I try not to block people, but you can block things that they share from. and so that, I know. <laughs> it, make, it, makes, it makes saving friends so much easier. I think of this as a compassionate effort on my part, actually. I don't know if it comes across that way, but I, I, that's how I feel about it, at least. Um, I, I, it's, I, it's so funny that there is a title called, what was it, The Least Reliable Book in Print or something? The Least Credible History Book in Print. <laughs> that is amazing that they created this title uh, to to match the ignominy of this uh, of this man's work. Uh, and I'm sure that we're probably among the least credible podcasts on, on the air, but, uh, but uh, you know, I'm not pretending to be a professional yeah. either. So, um, exactly. wow, that's crazy. Okay. Um, and so what, as a historian, what is it that's particularly concerning to you? First as a historian, and then we'll get to sort of the Christian aspect, oh. aspect of it later. Goodness, where do you start? Um, I guess you need to start with the basics of what history is. Um, most historians teach what they call the five C's of history to help understand what's been happening. Number one is change over time. Number two, causality. Number three, context. Number four, complexity. Number five, contingency. Now, you could ask any historian what they think Barton's view is, and they'll probably give you something different. But in my personal opinion, he tends to ignore context, complexity, and change over time. Hmm. So he's looking at historical documents from a 21st century standpoint, not from a 17th or 18th century standpoint. Um, I know some authors might call it present presentism or presenteeism. So if you hear those words, it's kind of the same thing and okay and that's a term like that he would use or that's... no that's that's a term that most historians would use it's looking at the past with if and with ah. only regard to the present or by the present standards so it's a derisive term yeah okay <laughs> no no one likes it <laughs> okay that's interesting to me that's great um so i guess this leads me to uh, i want to kind of make some connections to his place in evangelical culture as we go along here um I suppose that might be one reason or that tendency of his, particularly the the change over time and uh, context and complexity, is where he finds some affinity in a lot of um, evangelical culture. And, and I don't even know how to what label to use anymore. But when I say that, what I mean is this kind of Christianity that's identity based and governed largely by uh this media sphere and that sort of thing you know and it's like, mm-hmm. uh, and that's what i mean by it and and i know that, that that maybe should be a topic somewhere down the line what does evangelicalism even mean now but um so am i wrong though is that is that a a connection that makes this approach to history um attractive to the, his audience i think it is because Barton's history is simple, and that doesn't mean that history has to be hard. You know, you don't have to sit down with some 800 to 1,000 page tome of knowledge and try to figure out what's been going on. But Barton's simplicity, I think, plays right into the evangelical tradition of um, individual priesthood, Mm. where if we can sit down and we can read and we can understand the Bible, well then... If every believer is a priest, then every American can be an historian. Yes. And I'm not trying to diminish, you know, reading the Bible and understanding understanding it for yourself. But I doubt there'd be very many out there who would say, I can sit down with my English Bible and I don't need to consult the Greek or the Hebrew and I don't need to consult the church fathers or anything or anyone else to find out what this means or how it's changed over time. What Barton has done is he's distilled it down and has said, you know, this is what it means. You can, you too, can be an historian like me. That's interesting, um, Jay. So I, I guess, I mean, I suppose the people who would think that about Christianity would also be Jay or uh, David Barton's fans, <laughs> and the people well, who, who rely him or, or rely on him. Well, perhaps. I mean, you know, he he fell out of favor with his book, and they turned on him then too. So I'm not quite sure. You know, I can't speak for each person's individual individual opinion on that 
And I suppose now, I mean, where where do we find him? I mean, I typically you see him on the sort of uh, TVN mm-hmm. kind of um, televangelist. Yeah, if you look up, I mean, not that I would waste the time doing it, but if you really wanted to find out where he's going to be speaking, you can find his television schedule on his website. And mainly it's TBN. And every Friday or every other Friday, Glenn Beck seems to have him on his show as, as for some founders segment. Um, less so since the presidential campaign picked up, and I imagine that he's been doing more with that um, political action committee. But definitely the last four or five years, he's been he's been on uh, Glenn Beck's show and on his t- um, TV network, The Blaze or something like that. The Blaze, yeah. What, what do you think? So this is just off the top of my head. What do you think? Um about his, um, gosh, the the idea, the whatever, is this Christian nationalism basically we're talking about, right? Um, where does this even come from? Is it his invention or does it just, is he just sort of taking part of this? No, I think he's taking part of it. And again, when we start talking about terms like Christian nationalism, I know we're going to get people who, you know, they associate nationalism with something like Nazism of the 1930s or something like that. And so I really don't like this idea of Christian nationalism. I haven't found a good word for it, but it's, I don't know, it's all, to me it's almost like, um, con- it's almost conflating the country with the church, mm. so, um, where America has been founded by Christ, and it's America that needs to claim the promises found in the Bible. And yes, there's time and place for that, but I think more so that it's the church than, say, a country. That is so like amenable to our kind of meme driven uh, communication though. You see all these memes with like church signs that say, you know, America, if you want God to bless you, then stop passing immoral laws or something like that. Right. Uh, right. And so I think that the, that's the kind of simplicity that uh, I suppose people like Barton, I would say prey on. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, and not to say that he's probably, that he's not sincere, and I right. don't think that he thinks he's deceiving people, I guess, isn't um, You know, I, I I think he probably thinks he's on the right side of, I guess, history. But and, and I would argue that even the churches that have those signs probably don't think in terms like that. They probably, you know, if you were to ask them, they would say, well, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about, you know, American citizens or America as the, as a person. But if people don't take or if congregations don't take the time to think, then it will lead to forms of idolatry and putting the church or putting America in place of the church or America in place of the individual. Yeah. Um, uh, you have some, uh, in kind of our communication beforehand, you gave me some interesting notes about your first uh, encounter with him. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? How you even came to, how he came into your, your, uh, your purview? Oh, sure. Um, my first encounter with Barton and his version of history um, came about my first year of teaching. I was in a small school, and I was just asked to show his American Heritage series as part of my own American history class. It was a directive from one of my superiors, and I not knowing any better. You know, first-year teachers, they make a lot of mistakes. <laughs> so I just, you know, show up to class, and I was like, okay, we're going to watch this video and put it in. And as soon as he starts going, I ended up spending more time correcting and clarifying his statements than in actually watching the film i think i about wore the pause button out on that tv remote (laughs) on the on the plus side that class got quite the introduction to ethics and history and um i have learned that since i saw that particular version i think i had like one of the first releases or the one that was given me was a first release since then he's come out with an updated version with some more of the egregious statements either removed or edited for clarity or you know to make himself look not quite as bold-faced liar as he is yeah anyway um go ahead but after that experience i you know barton just kind of became my my soapbox (laughs) um every time he comes up in the news or someone publishes a book about him or he says something so off the wall i know i just have to share it one of my favorite sayings is friends don't let friends cite barton <laughs> so 
we should get a, if we ever get a store for this uh, podcast, we'll have to get a T-shirt uh, that has that saying on it, and we'll sell it on the on the on the website. That'll be uh, that'll Excellent. be a long-term goal here. So um, you've given me a good idea here, Jay. So um, I, and I guess this is uh, if. People who are listening think, well, this is just like a TBN guy. What's the big deal? Why should we even pay attention to this? I think they're probably – it's more insidious than just a TBN guy, right? This isn't mm-hmm. Jim Baker anymore. You know what I'm saying? Right. Um, like, there's the last an influence time I here. checked, Jim Baker didn't influence the school curriculum of two of the largest school districts in the country. How does he get that kind of influence? In, in Texas, I suppose it's – I mean, there's a in- – yeah. I wondered about that as well, and the nearest I can find, it's all in who he knew at the time, and just out there persistent, getting on the right boards, the right committees to push his agenda. Well, and and the media coverage that he gets within that kind of Mm -hmm. Christian media sphere, that for many people just, I think, uncritically accept that as orthodox Christian thought. Right. Um, And and to me, if I have any kind of hobby horses or, or agendas for the show that's the sphere that I, I i'm trying to draw attention to our praise we had a thing about the christian film industry um a few months ago and, and i think that it's a part of that i can imagine david barton having cameos in some of these god's not dead type movies oh yeah <laughs> i mean i don't know that he has i frankly haven't had the stomach to sit through many of them, but um, but that's how that that sort of network um, networking um, kind of works. And, and the fact that as a school teacher in a, I assume Christian school, mm-hmm. um, that this is given to you as curriculum, um, I think that this is a reason for us to think about uh, this kind of an issue. And right. there's a lot of uh, um, you know facets to this that you have plan to talk about here. Um, can I point you towards, we had talked about the problem from a historian's perspective, um, the, the five C's, as you say. Mm-hmm. Um, what about from a Christian perspective or a Christian historian perspective, if you want to make it easier? Or well, if we're, yeah, if you're, if we're going to talk about uh, a Christian historian rather than reiterate what someone else has already done, I would just point the listeners to uh, Chris Gertz's recent post on Christian his- on a Christian historian over at the uh, Pietist Schoolman blog. So and podcast, he, uh, he, he has, and yes, and podcast. If I didn't mention him in the in the roll call of our podcast, it's because we have too many for me to keep track of now. And, and his is one of the great ones as well. And yes, uh, so tell us more about Chris, I guess, and what he said about this. Well, like I said, he's said it much better than I could. So. Personally, if I were listening right now and I hadn't read that yet, I'd hit pause and I'd go over and, you know, spend three, four minutes reading it. It's quite short. Um, He sums it up. And again, I'm not looking at it and I hadn't planned to talk about it. But I know that he said that we should strive to, I believe he put it, to tell the truth in love would be the ultimate goal of a Christian historian. And I know that when I introduce the concept of historiography to my ninth grade class, yes, I actually do that, <laughs> I, I talk to them about, you know, what is what is the goal of a Christian historian? And I actually, I don't mention Barton by name because I know that there, within my students there's many different ideas and opinions about him. But I ask them a, a question like, is it right for a Christian to make people more Christian than they are? You know, to ignore the bad stuff or to ignore the flaws or to ignore their failings, Mm. which I think is the problem that that Barton has is that he's, you know, if he views the world as having completely removed religion, he wants to swing in the whole opposite direction and say, okay, it was only about religion and specifically about the Bible. Yeah. And I, when I think back to what you were talking about with his, ideas about Jefferson and the founders. It, it's so like just, I mean, as a, uh, a scholar from English, I mean, the, it, that is such kind of bad scholarship well, be, because you're, I mean, and I'm sure it's even worse from a historian's perspective, well, but because you're, it is. And <laughs> go ahead. It's, it's almost one of those things where you wonder, you know, what he actually read. I know in my, I guess they, they're about 11th. I normally get them about 11th grade for American history. And again, I teach at a private school, and it's a Christian, it's a faith-based school. But 
one of the documents we look at is the Declaration of Independence. And I ask them, you know, where does government come from? Well, from a Christian perspective, it comes from God. Yes. And they all want to say, well, Jefferson said it was God because men are endowed by their creator. And it's like, you know, read a few lines down where he says that governments are instituted by men, deriving their powers from the consent of the governed. Mm. Well, where did that come from? Well, you know, take your pick. Was it Locke, Montesquieu, whatever we can say it was? the Enlightenment, the Age of Reason, what have you, but it was not from the Bible. That goes directly against Romans 13. Yeah, and that's what I was getting at is the, these are, I mean, to impose this great awakening, you know, Billy Graham style of evangelicalism upon people who were predating all of that, <laughs> frankly, mm-hmm. and and they were, and in addition to that, they were children of the Enlightenment. They had the, I mean, they had these uh, uh, deist ideas about creation, and, and it, to try and make that match just seems to be jumping through so many hoops mm-hmm. f- uh, for an obvious end that you, you seem to have the end that you want to create out of history uh, in mind as you're telling these stories. Right. And and to me, it's the same thing that what I was complaining about with the God's Not Dead movie uh, from an artistic perspective. I felt like that was an unethical movie because it unlovingly and kind of falsely portrayed people who are uh, uh, supposedly against Christians in American culture. There's these caricatures instead of loving um, thoughtful portraits of, <laughs> of, of uh, the other side, if you will. And in a lot of ways, he's doing the same thing on a historian's level. Yes. Well, okay. Um, your next topic. Um, <laughs> what would you like to talk about next? You have a lot for me to choose from. Oh, I have, I have no idea. Okay. Um, it's, it's, it's your podcast. Okay. Time. Where are we going? <laughs> well, you have this thing about being seen as outside the establishment uh, in okay. your notes. And that seems to be mm-hmm. interesting because that, that could get at some of the core uh, issues of a lot of what we talk about here. Right. We're talking – you know, about how Barton became popular, how he ties into, you know, um, evangelical ideology, if you will. And in the current election, most conservatives, most evangelical conservatives are looking for someone who is outside their establishment or outside the conservative establishment party. And as I was working on these notes, I realized that Barton kind of sits outside he sits outside of the establishment of history. Mm. Um, you know, he attempts to treat history as if it were law. That's not original to me, but I can't remember who said it. Um, but he holds neither a history degree nor a law degree <laughs> and instead relies on his own self-teaching. In fact, on his own on his own website, it says that through his own research, he became an expert in all these fields. And it's like, okay, well, where did you get your basis. What is your foundation on? And it's pretty much like, well, I just decided to pick this up and do it one day. I know maybe maybe I'm wrong on that. Maybe there's more, but if it is, he hasn't written about it and it's not been it's not been published. Um, you know, it is possible to become a good historian without formal training. You know, there are many good amateur historians out there, but it all it's almost like Barton makes it a point of pride to reject any sort of historical training. Um, I was doing some research for this, and I found a a video I hadn't seen before. But he claims that modern education has been taken over by people like revisionists, secularists, atheists, and then a fourth group, which surprised me, Christians who've been taught by them. Mm -hmm. So he's almost saying, you know, you can't trust anyone with a a university degree in history because they've been tainted by, you know, X, Y, Z. So coming from outside looking in, I'm the one to, you know, if we're if we're looking outside the Republican Party or looking outside the Democratic Party to make our party great again, he's coming from outside history to make American history great again. It is a, a typical move in these the, the form of evangelicalism that I'm talking about and, and still haven't come up with a good name for Um but this uh, this kind of alternative universe that's created, and the film industry is one example of that. So Hollywood is a sort of tainted institution, and therefore you have these this sort of genetic <laughs> problem with it. Anything coming out of it is therefore tainted with flawed ideology, and and many many Christians um, feel the same way about higher education or even education mm-hmm. in general. And and, mm-hmm. and so just as people are looking for. 
um, alternative um, forms of uh, entertainment. They're also sort of looking for alternative forms of knowledge. Um, right. And, and there's something tempting about leaving the mainstream, leaving institutionals, institutions, um, and, and sort of crafting something that seems transcendent. But it's also problematic because there's not really any kind of ethical oversight then, right? Right. And in fact, he would view any criticism as proof that he's right. Yes. Because, you know, if they're criticizing me, well, since I'm claiming to stand for, you know, what is right, then they're attacking what is right. Therefore, it's a vindication of my own belief. Yeah, you have a nice circular system built for yourself there. Right. Um, um, and actually, it reminds me, uh, Jordan Poss uh, had uh, uh, suggested, or I, in just kind of conversation, talked about doing a, a episode sometime about conspiracy theories, which is a special sort of interest Ooh. of mine and his as well. But it's the yes. same. <laughs> it's the same uh, uh, motivation there, isn't it? Uh, anything mm-hmm. I have a thing I think, and anything that tells me differently is part of the conspiracy that I've constructed that I'm opposing. And and so... And then even anything that tells me differently is part of the conspiracy because it was put there to detract from the truth. Yes. Um, Exactly. And honestly, one of my guilty... I I probably shouldn't admit this publicly. I admit it all the time privately to my students, but uh, publicly on air it seems a little weird, but I fall asleep every night watching uh, these kind of paranormal uh, conspiracy documentaries on my phone, and uh, the, the famous one is Ancient Aliens, and, and so, um, and I, I just get such a kick out of this, but they're using essentially the same rhetoric that you're describing, folks like Barton are using, in mm-hmm. that um, mainstream archaeology thinks that we're, you know, that we didn't exist 300,000 years ago, but uh, but us smart people um, who have haven't been tainted by that mainstream archaeology know the truth that aliens came and seeded the human race, right? So replace aliens with um, evangelical Jefferson, and you have <laughs> kind of the same argument, really. Really? Yes. Um, and so, yeah, I, I feel like it's really um, a troubling uh, uh, paranoid uh, style, really, that he's talking about there or that he's using there. Yep. Um, and, and I find it to be really problem, uh, problematic. You had said something earlier about not liking the term Christian nationalism. Um, and I guess the, for the same reason that I think that when I use the term evangelical, it's not really adequate. Um, when I say that, what am I talking about and, and how does this all play into that? If you don't want to apply that term, like, can you describe for it what I mean? I think what you mean is this idea, and again, we have to be careful with how we how we define things because so many terms are used in different ways, but it's almost like, um, I've heard it said, God and country, mm. but but I know I know the people that have said that, and I know they don't mean country is equal to God. But then again, I've met people who they, you know, country is equal with God. And so I guess I can understand where you're coming with, with um, the idea of Christian nationalism. I think when I hear Christian nationalism, I almost think theocracy. Yes. And that is, I don't want to say it's a very real threat, but that's kind of what Barton is working towards. He's working towards controlling not just education, but he's working toward controlling education and the media um, through those influencing government and economics until he or people like like him control what he refers to as the seven mountains of culture. In fact, there's a – I don't know that there's a denomination based around it, but there is a movement called Seven Mountain Dominion or Seven Mountain Dominionism which is focused around Christians or conservative Christians retaking or winning the culture wars based on these seven ideas of um, American culture. And he says what they are. I saw him talk about this in a video um, Mm -hmm. when I was uh, prepping for this, and I can't remember. Government is one, and um, like uh, culture is one. So the the sort of pure flicks sort of film industry is, uh, is one kind of, entryway into that as well um Mm -hmm. and yeah and there are all these sorts of things that have to be conquered for god basically by god's people um is sort of the metaphor that they're using there um 
Go ahead. I was going to say, for me, it's troubling. And again, I know this this isn't really, you know, we didn't come into this to talk theology. But Christians are called to be salt and light in the world. And we're told to expect to be persecuted because Christ was persecuted. So I think that this whole idea that we should expect our country to agree with our conservative Christian beliefs or to agree with whatever the beliefs you might have – this idea that Christians should be tolerated in America is it isn't necessarily against the Bible, but from what the Bible teaches us it shouldn't it definitely shouldn't be expected. So it in some way I see it as going against I don't know, like against the norm almost. Do you do you understand where it's, I'm going with it's that? It's paradoxical, right? right. Yeah. It, uh, yeah. We're, go ahead. we're we're told the world's going to hate you. I'm going to give you strength to persevere, and then you have, well, we need to take control of the government, we need to take control of the culture so that we are not persecuted. <laughs> yeah, and, and yeah, it just seems like a self-defeating um, end. And this is an idea that in maybe diluted forms is pretty prevalent, I think, in American um, Protestant churches. This is this, I mean, this is why so many um, sermons become political around election years. I mean, it's, it's rooted mm-hmm. in some degree of this and, and how we need to stack the Supreme court in a certain way. And, 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 and all of this because of this, um, even if it's not to the degree that Barton takes it, it's part of that same impulse. Uh, and I, I guess I, I need I, to, I, I guess I have a problem because I don't see, um, you know, controlling government anywhere in the great commission. Yeah. So I, I don't know. Maybe I'm off base on that. Um, I would agree with you, and uh, and I, I suspect most of the listeners here will. I would love for someone to disagree and, and to yell at me at some point on the Facebook page. That would be great. Um, but uh, I would totally agree with that, and I think that it's. I think in principle, people would say that, but when it comes down to being passionate about the issues that we're passionate about. Um, too often we go in that other direction, um, and, mm-hmm. and I think that that's that's an interesting um, dilemma. Um, you talked about the freedom of religion issue a little bit. Um, oh, in a, a little bit, yeah. Only because, well, I wasn't quite sure if it was going to come up or not. But no, this is I, I know Barton thought, is yeah. all you know. He's like, well, we need to get back to America's religious foundation, and I know that the historian me automatically thinks, oh, you mean the the kind where there were one or two state religions, and if you weren't that, they would literally ride you out of town on a rail? <laughs> it's like, what what kind of, you know, what kind of religion are we talking about here? And he doesn't really necessarily define his, he doesn't necessarily define his terms, and I think what he really means is more of like a spiritual heritage with religious people, but he doesn't come out and say that, and so it's, you know, it's a contradiction of terms on his end there yeah and and to look for that not only in kind of biblical texts which i i think i would see as a misreading of those but mm-hmm. but they also look for it in founding documents like the the, the first amendment here is sort of um a uh, they i think i read or heard him say some or read something that he said that um the separation of church and state is like a one-way barrier um it, is that am I reading remembering this correctly? Well, you're you're reading him correctly, and right. that quote, and that quote is interesting. He that was one thing he came under fire for in the original America's Godly Heritage or in his video series because he put his own opinion, which you just said that it like it was a wall, but it was a one way wall. Mm-hmm. He said that which was that whole one way wall thing is his own opinion, but the way he presented it was as a quote from Jefferson. Mm. But it's sort of like something he's imposed upon Jefferson. Yes. Yeah. And didn't he have – there's a – okay, now here we get – what was the name of the controversy? It was something about secondary sources. Um, oh. And, um, and this is part of that, I think. So back in the early 90s when Barton was first coming onto the scene in, in the media, he came under fire because many of his – sources or many of his quotes that he used to back up his his main ideas were um second for from secondary sources now historians often use secondary sources but if a first if a primary source 
is there, you know, you would rather use that. So number one, many of his points were supported only by secondary sources. And just as an example for someone who might not know what a secondary source is, that's like the story of George Washington cutting down the cherry tree. Mm. Um, that was written by a Washington biographer after his death, but it gained traction and you know now it's taught almost as well it used to be taught as fact that in the age of the internet it's died down i'm not getting you know i'm i'm grateful now that when i get students in ninth grade you know they know that george washington didn't cut down the cherry tree and columbus didn't think the world was flat <laughs> so i'm glad that the i'm glad for the internet for those things but um he came under fire for these secondary sources number one because they were secondary but number two because many of these sources he he cited were documents in his own possession and at the time it was extremely difficult to get access to his library there was again it's changed i was very very young in 1989 but um from what i understand there was a long process to get in to see any of these documents and of course at the time he would only allow those who he knew would be on his side to see them so from his materials published in the late 80s early 90s often the citation would only read like document in personal in personal possession or something like that or document in personal collection mm. um since then he's come out with a list of roughly 14 um 14 citations or 14 unattributed citations that he says accurate, still accurate, accurately reflect the founder's intent, even though they're not backed up by any primary source. Mm. Um, he kind of turned the tables on this. Again, this happened a little bit before my time, and it happened a little bit before the age of the Internet. And so it's a little bit difficult to find reliable information on this controversy. But to me, it appears that he was able to spin the controversy into a discussion on use of primary versus secondary sources. <laughs> I wish I had him in my senior capstone class. This would be fun to, uh, uh, to have a session about. <laughs> so, I mean, if, if he has a victory, that's one of them is that people, you know, that's one of the controversies that gets swept under the rug. Yeah. Um, and, and again, and so as both a historian and a, a, you know, a public Christian figure, I mean, this is just sort of bad PR uh, for both for both, you know, traditions. Uh, well, yeah. And it is because if anyone has an I don't even want to say obligation, but if anyone should tell the truth, it should be a Christian. Mm. And if you're out there telling – I don't want to say that they're lies, but they're lies. Mm -hmm. If you're out there propagating lies that are easily refuted and again and again for you know, 20, 30, 40 years, you know, we have the documents that prove what is being said is wrong, then at some point you have to agree, okay, maybe my premise is wrong. Yeah. Um, well, you don't if there's an industry there supporting you. Uh, that is also true. <laughs> and so, I mean, you should, right? But uh, in this sort of alternative universe mm -hmm. that has been uh, constructed over a few decades, um, you can go on living, you know, this lie and, and be applauded for it uh, from and people with inside that, that, that system. And again, I don't, we're not, we're not here to talk theology, but it comes into it because we are dealing with the Christian's idea of history. Hmm. I don't really see what the problem is with discussing the non-spiritual side of our heritage, with discussing the fact that there were some of our founding fathers who were deists or had what would be considered today would be moral failings or, or what have you, because all that you have to do is look at the Bible and see just how bad man can be, and yet God still used them. So I I don't really see why I understand his viewpoint with trying to keep America's spiritual heritage fresh but what I don't understand is why he won't address the negative side of things or the negative side from a Christian standpoint mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, sure, like a, an internal critique, right? Exactly. Uh, I know one of the things that annoyed me when I've watched the first version of his video series was the fact that he glossed over Washington's slave owning as the same for Jefferson. And I know that different parts of the country have different ideas on 
secret societies and what have you. But I know that, you know, George Washington, if I understand correctly, was involved in the Masons, and yet he never men- mentioned that either. Mm-hmm. You know, all of that comes into play, and all of that has a bearing on Washington the man. Exactly. And to ignore any of that is to just sort of undermine, I mean, basic freshman composition, we talk about ethos, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're undermining your own credibility by uh, by not addressing obvious kind of flaws in your argument. And, and so, uh, yeah, I think he has an obvious ethos problem for people outside of that bubble that he's been able to find a home in. And I guess that that bubble, whatever we want to call it, is the maybe the main topic of this podcast, it it seems to float in and out um, of many episodes. And I think I've been able to connect it to the football thing and the movies and everything. But um, I, I feel like for a while, especially in the last election, I felt like people were running for president, um, particularly on the, the Republican ticket who didn't even think they would win and I don't think wanted to win but they wanted to build a name brand for themselves Mm -hmm. to be Fox News pundits right (laughs) to create this sort of uh, market for themselves and and I think this election cycle that's kind of an interesting dilemma for the Republican Party but we talked about that a couple episodes ago Um, but in the same way uh, I feel like there is a market for this kind of um, uh kind of Christian nationalism, for lack of a better word, mm-hmm. um, this this uh, biblical foundational kind of idea of America. and, and I, I've also heard it termed Christian Reconstruction. Oh, that's a good one. Which that might be a better term for it. Yeah. But then you have to ask yourself, you know, what, what do you want to reconstruct? Is it the founding era? Because he talks about the founding fathers, but then it's almost as if he's putting them in the context of, say, the 1950s, you know, mom and pop and apple pie. Yeah. Or maybe even, you know, the conservative nostalgia for the Reagan years. Yeah. Which is blown out of proportion. And, oh, yes. And not a, uh, I mean, he's a, the Reagan that exists in their minds is kind of a caricature of the Reagan that actually was, you know what I mean? And he wouldn't be right. conservative enough for many of them, I think. So, um, no, and I think that uh, that's a that's a great way to put it because what they're, I mean, it's a nostalgia that they're, 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 selling essentially and uh, you know any kind of nostalgia is actually more about the present than it is the past <laughs> and so and I, and I think that that kind of works uh, and, and so when we see Jefferson and, and Adams and all of those folks as modern evangelical Christians um, that's a we're pushing that upon them that is something mm-hmm. that we're projecting uh, I mean, we can't we can't even see them necessarily as modern man and by modern i mean 21st century right you, you know we have we have to understand them in their in their context the third of the five c's right exactly <laughs> exactly that you, you mentioned before um but again all of that for me you know this is sort of the way i approach these questions is somebody's paying for this right it wouldn't be out there if there weren't money to be made off of it <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and, and and it's profitable for people and and i don't know if this is what pays for creflo dollars airplanes or or not but uh this is uh uh to me we do need to at least acknowledge that this is a financial venture at its heart, um, um, and even if, even though it has this kind of spiritual mm-hmm. um, uh, facade. Um, do you want to kind of push into some more optimistic <laughs> territory? And uh, I, I'm trying to, for the listeners, uh, Jay and I were talking about this before the show, try to keep these a little shorter. Uh, the hour and a half marathons, I think, I don't want to wear my w- listeners out. And so uh, trying to keep this a little shorter. And so um, what are some solutions? You had some really good ideas oh. for positive directions we can take from. One, I can before you begin, that I was occurring to me as you were talking about your students, I feel like that is a fantastic teaching opportunity to show them something that's wrong. And then that gives the, that empowers them to be critical thinkers like on their mm-hmm. own. And I think um, I, this is, I mean, I opened the podcast by talking about using a video from uh, Barton and Kenneth Copeland to talk about how wrong it is, not necessarily to present them with a model, right. But to give them right. something a practice and rhetorical analysis. And, um, and, and I feel like, that's a positive thing that we can do is sort of not necessarily 
rail for the banishment of people like these, uh, these folks that we're talking about, but to kind of use them as ways to think about how doing things better. That's one I would throw, but you have several great ideas too. Well, I'm glad that we've moved into the realm of optimism because, you know, as we're going on, I, I like point. It's one of these things I like pointing out Barton's mistakes, but then at some point I feel like I'm getting to the point where all I'm doing is beating a dead, a dead horse. So, <laughs> um, I guess flowing from your idea of using things that are wrong as teaching moments, and again, the Bible does the same thing. Yeah, I would say it would flow into being a good historian. Again, anyone can be an historian, but not necessarily the David Barton brand of historian. Um, you do need some grounding. You know, we should be able to talk about things knowledgeably. And again, from the Bible, I think of Paul on Mars Hill, who was able to relate Greek literature and philosophy with the people that were listening to him. Mm. And so we as Christians as well, we're living in the world. We come in contact with people of the world. So we, of all people, should ha be able to converse with them spiritually about worldly things. Makes sense. <laughs> that sounds great. Um, and, and I, and so from a, I mean, you know, a faith-based perspective then is right. what, what you're offering and, it, and thinking of it, thinking of it as an opportunity, um, I think is important. I've been really, um, convicted this week. I, I mean, I know that I have a, a, a snarky streak and part of the purpose of this podcast is a, a you know, a bit of a vent <laughs> for, for my sort of, uh, troubled childhood with church. Right. But, uh, uh, I, I really, I read an article in Vox that I, I, we will be discussing, I think over a few, um, segments, uh, in the future about, um, the, uh, what do you call it? The something style of liberalism in, in America, the, uh, uh, the smug, the smug style of liberalism. And yes, I, I just read that actually. Yeah. And I, I find it to be, I, I don't agree with every point he makes and, and um, I have particular reasons why, but it, it is very uh, interesting conversation. It's one that's worth having um, to think about not just being the sort of hammer smashing on things that we think are stupid all the time, right? Um, mm -hmm. Like, what can we do productively with things that are stupid? <laughs> and, and I think um, I've had a pedagogical idea. You've thrown out the spiritual one. Um, and, and I think that that's uh, a fantastic one. You talked about making American idol, too. Right. Um, I know that it's easy, especially in America, with the freedom that we've had to think that it is the norm throughout, you know, history. But a study of history, you'll realize that religious freedom or religious choice is a luxury almost unique to the last 150, 200 years. Um, I know that there were different places at different times that allowed more more than others, but you know, in our way of thinking, you know, we're in America, where the we are, you know, still coming off of the height of the Cold War and off the Reagan years. Yes, we're still dealing with that. But we have this idea that America is on top, so we must be the greatest. Therefore, God has uniquely blessed us. Now, I can't deny that God has uniquely blessed us, but I would almost think it's one of these where, you know, from the New Testament where Paul says that we're to die to ourselves daily. I think as Americans, it would be, it would be good to remember that our kingdom is heavenly, not earthly. Mm -hmm. um, the Israelites, for example, you know, they took the Ten Commandments, they took the Ark of the Covenant, and over time that became their God to them rather than Jehovah. Mm -hmm. And I think that in conservative Christian circles, we can almost take America's founding documents, we can take the Constitution, we can take the Declaration of Independence, you know, put them up against the American flag and almost treat them the same way, mm -hmm. um, maybe without even knowing it. It's insidious. And right. Yeah. I, you know, growing up in a sort of low Protestant tradition, um, we were always, you know, the Catholics were just, it was just sort of a priori given that Catholics were idolaters and, and, and that mm -hmm. sort of thing. And, and, um, and, you know, they will, they pray to statues and stuff. But in practice, I mean, is like seeing Pledge of Allegiance at a church any less um, idolatrous. <laughs> I mean, can anything be <laughs> more idolatrous than that? Uh, uh, I don't know. Th thankfully, I've only said the pledge in church during a 
patriotic program or it was a patriot uh, something of patriotic significance it was not part of a religious service yeah so yeah i i can't speak from experience for that one yeah i can and and i was made very uncomfortable by that and and i think it's one of those things that seems so good and so wholesome you know Mm -hmm. um and and then the idea of redefining america to uh give us kind of moral weight for um, particular ethical arguments that we're making today by redefining those roots. Um, it seems such like such a, a noble enterprise, right? But right. it's so I mean, the ring of power in Tolkien, right? I mean, this is, it's such a, it's such a, 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 a potential idol um, that I think it, it is worth um, looking out for those in everything we do. Um, and, and, for the case of David Barton, it's the way he does history. Um, Terry Pratchett. Yes. <laughs> I thought you'd know where to go with that. Well, I, I mean, I, <laughs> it, we could do a whole podcast on, on Pratchett. You know, we, we could just have the Discworld podcast. It probably wouldn't fit in the Christian <laughs> Humanist Network, but I think anything fits in here. If, I mean, I think that's the beauty of this this uh, this but endeavor. It, if you don't know. Or if you haven't heard of Terry Pratchett, he wrote the quite popular Discworld series, um, passed away last April. And I am actually rereading all of the Discworld novels this year, but I'm keeping track of different quotes that stick out to me. He's excellent when it comes to putting philosophy and theology and just basically the human experience into fiction and you don't realize that you're getting all of these ideas until you know you've read 300 pages of the dwarves going off to fight the trolls and on you know at the end neither of them fight each other they make peace but it's not like you know it's all said and done everyone has a happy ending you know there are deep philosophical thoughts there and I, as i was reading through some of these quotes i've written down one stuck out to me in relation to this podcast which says, truth isn't easily pinned to a page. In the bathtub of history, the truth is harder to hold than the soap and much more difficult to find. <laughs> that doesn't mean we don't go looking. Now, this isn't him. This is now me speaking. But that, is, that isn't to say we don't go looking for it, but to say that we can objectively find truth in history is a little bit presumptuous. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, and yeah, because I mean, it's essentially a narrative form, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and so to tell any story is to edit it in some way, right? And right. that act of editing is making creative choices. And, and so, uh, there are ways to do creative work, uh, in, in, in ethical manners. Um, man, this has been so great. I got to have you back on frequently. You're so good. Uh, <laughs> I will be more than happy to. <laughs> Jay, you're awesome, man. Um, you have uh, a couple suggestions, and I'll put uh, these links up on the uh, on the show notes and on the web page. Uh, so if you want to uh, uh, look into the things we've been talking about, I'll have the I'll have something for Pratchett and Chris Gertz and uh, and so forth. But you have some other things you want to talk about. Um. Opposite of Barton's view of history, or if America was founded as a Christian nation, which Barton comes to it as, yes, it was, and then it's his job to fill in the gaps to make sure that his uh, notion is upheld. On the opposite side, you have historian John Fea, and he, excuse me, he, he has published a book, Was America Founded as a Christian Nation? And he views it from three distinct viewpoints. I won't give any, give anything away, but he views the past for what it is. He's actually a trained historian. He has he is a professor of American history at Messiah College. Um it's down that, the road I, from I me think here. that's in, uh, yeah, I was just going to say <laughs> I think that I think that's in Grantham. Anyway. Yeah, it's near Harrisburg, yeah. Right. So, I would strongly suggest his book again that was um was America founded as a Christian nation? And then just to keep update updated on him, he does have his own blog, thewayofimprovement.com, and it's based on one of his other books, The Way of Improvement Leads Home, which relates to um, the Great Awakening mm. in the United States. And he's on sabbatical this year, so he's actually written quite a bit in the last couple months, so now is a good time to 
find out what he is all about and just give him a give him a look that's awesome and you mentioned the um uh, chris gertz um essay yes and and you should check out the pietist schoolman podcast as well um here's a a working christian historian that yes. um i think uh does things from the right motivations and and uh and says some really smart things i'm and always not amazed. only that but you will get correct german pronunciation <laughs> This is a problem. Now, I wouldn't even try, right, on my show. But the uh, the guys over there at the Christian Humanists, you know, Gilmore and them, they uh, they try to <laughs> they at least try, right? So. Uh, bless their hearts. Yes, they do. <laughs> oh, they got the famous bless their hearts. Uh, I, I, just just to be clear, I've talked to them about the German pronunciation before, and it's it's fine. I know. <laughs> I, I hear those letters. I know. Um, that's awesome. Well, Jay Eldred, um, thanks again. This was so, so uh, enlightening. First of all, I really appreciate you suggesting the idea. Um, that's kind of what makes this fun for me is learning from other people. And, and uh, this was something I, I sort of knew about to a, a small degree, but you've really helped me kind of understand it and place it into context for larger and, and other um areas that I'm kind of interested in as far as the sort of the Christian mind, right? And, and Christian mm-hmm. imagination as much as anything else. And so um, that could be the subtitle of this podcast um, if such a thing was possible. But um, but no, and so I really appreciate you, you know, offering your, your services. And you did such a great job talking us through this, uh, this topic. Um, thanks so much. Um, can you, uh, on the way out, can you tell me the name of the seven uh, mountain dominion, or this, to talk about, what is it, seven what? I'm looking for it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know that I wrote it in the notes, didn't I? Seven mountain... Da, 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 da. Okay, I found it. Um, it's Seven Mountain Dominionism. Um, and those seven mountains were family, religion, education, media, entertainment, business, and government. Okay. Um, and what Barton wants to do is control those to shape and control whatever takes place in nations, continents, and even the world. I see a podcast in our future here. I think um, each of the seven mountains has a corollary in that sort of Christian media sphere. I see, I see Dave Ramsey floating around out there somewhere, for example. Um, and how uh, very Dantean, <laughs> exactly. And sadly, this week uh, the great Prince died just yesterday, as we're recording this. And he has a song that I think is an appropriate one to to take us out on. All seven, and we'll watch them fall. They stand in the way of love, and we will smoke them all. And intellect and the savoir faire. No one in the whole universe. Thanks for listening to Sectarian Review. Download us again next month for another hour of criticism, reviews, and opinion. In the meantime, check out our Facebook page and send us an email at sectarianreview at gmail.com. Sectarian Review is a part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Eternal thanks to Kristen Philippic, intrepid press liaison. Until next time, Remember the words of Kafka, don't despair, not even over the fact that you don't despair. Bye.